Um, today we are most lucky to have um, Professor Leslie Potter, who's a visiting fellow um, at ANU. Uh, her research addresses the historical analysis of forests, grasslands, and land use change in Southeast Asia, especially colonial and post-colonial impacts of government policies on small farmers, as well as current ethnographic studies um, in Indonesia. Most recently, her work has been on smallholder producers of tree-based commodities, such as palm oil, rubber, and coffee, and on community forestry. She's the co-author um, of In Place of the Forest, Socioeconomic and Environmental Transformation in Borneo and the Eastern Malay Peninsula, and Tree Planting in Indonesia, um, as well as numerous articles on environmental and colonial history and the political ecology of agroforestry, smallholders, and the state in contemporary Southeast Asia. Today, she'll be speaking on recent developments in Indonesia's forests, revival, resurgence, or business as usual. Thanks very much, Mark. Now, as I, I said to the people at the, uh, the earlier session, um, I then, at, at that point, I was concentrating on domestic forests, on forests which are actually being produced by people. Uh, this time, I'm talking in, in a much more general way about developments in Indonesia's forests and forestry um, over the last few years. And I will be including some of the uh, information about what the people are doing in terms of tree planting and uh, so on. But um, it will be a much more general sort of overview. Okay. So um, there is a, a general sort of outline just looking at the forest resource in Indonesia, one of the world's uh, still forest-rich countries. Um, however, declining fast, um, looking at rates of forest cover change and degradation, the drivers of deforestation and concentrating particularly on the two islands of Sumatra and Kalimantan, which is the Indonesian part of Borneo. Um, the importance of domestic forests, the ones that local people are organizing. Um, the forest transition in terms of Indonesia, one of the uh, theoretical approaches to looking at deforestation, reforestation, um, regreening, all of those sorts of things. Current forest policy, and here we have um, red, the uh, approaches to avoided deforestation, reducing emissions from uh, deforestation and forest degradation, um, and, and looking at how the policies are affecting forest-dependent people. And then just asking this final question, is there a forest resurgence in Indonesia? And uh, what is the final conclusion? Okay. So <coughs> looking at the forest resource in general, um, the resource is rapidly declining. Uh, the government is anxious that timber plantations form more of the forest resource. Of course, FAO considers plantations as forests. I wouldn't, but uh, they do. But uh, so far, the reforestation, the, the setting up of forest plantations hasn't been particularly successful, partly, I suppose, because there's still so much natural forest which does remain. Um, so according to the Ministry of Forestry, you've still got almost half of the land covered in forests, um, with Papua, which used to be called Irian Jaya, part of the large island of New Guinea, 
Kalimantan and Sumatra containing 80%, and the very heavily populated island of Java with 120 million people with about 3%. However, only two-thirds of the permanent forest estate is actually forested, and uh, the Ministry of Forestry is, uh, has been very strong um, in its control over the forests and its, in its division of forests into production, forest protection, parks and reserves. Outside the permanent forest estate is where you're allowed to have agriculture. So you have these two groups of areas of convertible forest and other uses. However, the oil palm companies found that there wasn't enough space for them to actually continue to produce oil palm. So they've been allowed to reclassify areas of forest if they're considered degraded enough. And sometimes if you light fires in them, then they fairly quickly become degraded. Um, to enable them to plant oil palm. And community forests, so-called people's plantations, a new thing, are, are also now established there. The emphasis in the production forest, however, is tree planting, really not agriculture. In Malaysia, oil palm is considered a forest. Many village forests and farms lie within the production forest. The, the World Bank reckons about 50 to 60 million people, and some are inside national parks, and the original categories, of course, ignored human occupation. They were interested in slope and soil and things like that, but humans could have been non-existent as far as the forestry department was concerned. There have been persistent calls to release this degraded production forest for permanent tenure, and um, eventually, in 2007, um, a new law granted some long-term leases, access but not ownership. The lands included within the PFE come under the jurisdiction of the Ministry of Forestry, while the convertible forests are managed at district level. So that includes the oil palm plantations too. And if you apply this, say, to Kalimantan, um, the red is the convertible forests, the light browny colour is the production forests, and it's that boundary which has always been the one that's been most contested. If you look at central Kalimantan, which is the area right in the middle there, um, there's very little land available for um, for actually growing anything except for forests. Um, the production forest is huge. But when you start to look at where the oil palm plantations are, much of that has now been converted. So the forest is supposedly degraded and a lot of it has now become oil palm. So, but they had to apply. Everybody has to apply to the Ministry of Forestry and then they'll have it declassified <coughs> if they're lucky. And then you get the purple areas, which are the national parks. Most of them are around the borders with Sarawak. Um, high mountains in many cases and uh, fairly inaccessible. The, the national parks along the coast have all been heavily invaded, um, heavily deforested, and uh, there are a lot of problems with orangutan populations and so on, which uh, some of the NGOs have been pretty anxious about. Um, okay, rates of forest cover change and degradation. The Ministry of, now this of course is very sensitive for the Ministry of Forestry. The Ministry of Forestry claims that deforestation declined from 2000 to 2005, partly as a result of improved forest management. Well, they would, obviously. Others suggest that a less sensitive satellite is responsible for the most recent effect. If you use a MODIS satellite rather than the, the ordinary, the previous Landsat, um, you find it doesn't pick up as much deforestation. So you can claim that deforestation has actually gone down. Very good, eh? However, Greenpeace nominated Indonesia for the Guinness Book of Records as the world's fastest deforester, which obviously didn't please the forestry department. Um, and the FAO calculated a decline of 1.4 million per year in primary forests, whatever they may be, 
with no visible sign of human activity between 2000 and 2005. I don't know what a primary forest is actually in Indonesia. Forest degradation, of course, is much harder to measure, but vastly increased amounts of logging over the past decade, both legal and illegal, left much damaged and degraded forests behind. So this is the deforestation rate according to the Ministry of Forestry. And as you can see, it has nicely gone down, but don't really believe it. So the decrease of forest cover in Indonesia, and here is a, a map for people who aren't really sort of too familiar with um, the Indonesian situation. You have the two large islands of Sumatra and Borneo. So Kalimantan is the two thirds of that. And you can see that a good deal of the decrease of forest cover has been happening there, particularly in the center of Sumatra in the province of Riau, um, where you had huge amounts of forest degradation and, and a decrease in forest cover, and in central Kalimantan also. Whereas if you look over to the, <coughs> to the uh, eastern areas, uh, the, the areas of, um, um, is it east? Whatever it is anyway, the areas um, f further away from Sumatra and Kalimantan, you see the area of Papua, which is um, at the moment doesn't have too much in the way of forest cover decrease. So their forests are still reasonably okay, and that's fairly important. Um, the island of Java, of course, has not much in the way of forest that's left. Um, Indonesia is the world's third largest greenhouse emitter, the source of the carbon coming mainly from forest clearance, especially from burning peat forests. Now this particular diagram has since been challenged somewhat, as uh, some other studies have said that China has now replaced the US as the world's largest emitter. That doesn't change the situation of Indonesia. And most of the uh, carbon is coming from forests. So you can see the green is forestry, um, the blue is energy, and uh, the other, the red is agriculture. So Indonesia has um, very much dependent on emissions from forestry in order to get it into this position of being third on the list. If you look at the US, you'll see that um, reforestation has actually occurred. So you're, you're getting sequestration of carbon um, in the US, uh, um, but um, obviously in Indonesia, it's the forest. And energy is coming up because Indonesia has just decided to get most of their energy from coal, uh, local coal, and uh, so that um, that's gonna increase as well. Um, so annual emissions from deforestation, most of it from the production forest, quite a bit of it from pulpwood plantations and oil palm plantations, and other includes what local people might be doing in terms of their own amounts of land clearing and so on, um, shifting cultivation as well. But um, a good deal of it comes from plantation clearing or simply from logging. So the drivers of deforestation, first of all, um, logging both legal and illegal, um, Selective logging is technically forest degradation rather than deforestation, but a logged over forest is often subsequently cleared. In fact, generally one might say subsequently cleared. The fall of the Suharto government in 1998 ushered in a new era of reformation in which local people sought economic benefits from logging which had previously been denied them. And a revised forestry law made it possible for local groups and cooperatives to operate 100 hectare logging concessions in general, however, they couldn't do those by themselves. So although villagers may have wanted it, they usually had to have 
other people, more powerful people, um, who actually organised it. And they would get a certain amount of the, prof the profits from that, but not a large amount in general. Um, however, they did get some money out of logging, and it became the main source of income for many people in the forest areas. Decentralisation to district level in 2001 saw a decline in the role of the Central Ministry of Forestry, which has been trying to claw back ever since. Although the ministry soon attempted to revoke the small concessions, many remained active until 2003, and villagers seeking to continue their income from logging did so illegally. A decline in the number of large legal logging concessions, plus a huge demand from pulp and paper plants, plywood factories, various other woodworking industries encouraged illegal logging. So you have this strange situation where people went from illegal to legal and back to illegal. These illegal loggers were made legal. They got their 100 hectare permits. A couple of years later, the 100 hectare permits were revoked. Um, the people kept on logging. Um, so this particular diagram was drawn by one of the folks in C4 who was studying this. And by 2004, he was coming to the conclusion that about 91% of the uh, logging was happening illegally. And there's still a huge demand, far too many plants. Um, and of course, if there's a demand, then the supply must come from somewhere. The second of uh, the major drivers of deforestation is conversion to alternative land uses. And uh, basically there are two things here. Industrial plantations of acacia mangum and acacia crassicarpa, which happen in the, in the peat swamps, to feed the huge pulp and paper plants, especially in Sumatra. And those pulp and paper plants where they can use natural forest. So they don't bother to plant up their acacia mangum until they've managed to eliminate most of the natural forest and then they start their plantations. Oil palm plantations are of course the second one, the industry expanding after 2001 as the decentralized districts were heavily encouraging large corporations to come in and uh, set up oil palm. Uh, the owners of the new plantations try to locate them in forested areas using timber income to offset the establishment costs. So the latest figures for 2007, and that's the, only, the latest ones I have, were about 6.8 million hectares of oil palm altogether. Now that may not seem all that large, but very much larger areas have been cleared. So each plantation will have a sort of a land bank of a, a, a large area which is, hasn't been cleared yet, but is under their control. And so eventually they'll clear rather more and uh, then they'll set up their plantations. The district's government were, were blamed for issuing permits to bogus operators, and there were plenty of those, especially in forested provinces like East Kalimantan. Demand for biofuels from the EU and China also spurred oil palm development, lifting prices to unprecedented levels by March 2008. So they, they peaked, at then, and then they've since fallen back quite considerably, but they're still above the cost of production, so there's still an incentive to plant more. Um, just looking at the location of the craft pulp and paper mills, um, there are a lot of them, as you can see, in Sumatra. The two biggest ones are in the province of Riau in central Sumatra. That's uh, in the Kiat and uh, Riau Andalan pulp and paper. Um, there's only one so far in Kalimantan, but there are plans for more, and there are plans for some in Papua as well. So just to can illustrations, a truck carrying pulp logs, mixed tropical hardwood for the pulp and paper industry in Riau, Companies only access, as I said, their, their plantations when the natural timber is exhausted. They also have village outgrowers. And there's the wrap pulp mill, about 10 million cubic metres of fibre per year. So a huge appetite for fibre of all kinds. And they don't care what it is, you know, 
it, it, small logs, twigs, anything will go in there. They don't need big developed trees, so they cut down more or less everything. And then the old palm plantations. Forest building, burning, uh, forest clearing by burning is illegal, <coughs> but some plantations still practice it. And there's a lot of extensive cleared land, as I said. Young old palm near the Malaysian border, and uh, most of the forest clearing in this area was simply used to smuggle timber to suburb. And so that's really the only old palm plantation that managed to succeed, although a lot of forest was cleared. And uh, there you see um, a successful old palm plantation in Sangar district, West Kalimantan, which is an area that I had been studying quite a bit. And that's the largest area of oil palm in West Kalimantan. Now, one of the big problems is, of course, movement of oil palm and the uh, source of fibre for the pulp plantations into peat forests. And there's quite a lot of that, particularly um, around the coastal areas in Sumatra and Kalimantan. So this is uh, just looking at the uh, findings of a study of deforestation, forest degradation, biodiversity loss, and carbon dioxide emissions in Riau, which WWF did over 25 years. Now, this is kind of inter an interesting study because one of the things about this whole question of avoided deforestation and so on um, for the new Kyoto Protocol um, in 2012 is you need a baseline. And this sort of study gives you some sort of baseline. So the general conclusions were Rio, during that period, lost 65% of its forest, um, some of it to oil palms, some of it to pulpwood, and 17% became wasteland, not really occupied. Um, and then there were other losses for local agriculture and settlements and so on. The populations of the elephants and tigers declined. Um, fire hotspots were recorded. There was a huge amount of burning, still is. Um, a clear link, obviously, between fire and deforestation. Interestingly, the total CO2 emissions were estimated between 1990 and 2007 at 3.66 gigatons. The carbon sequestered was only 0.24 by planting oil, palm, and pulp. So, uh, you know, that's really quite interesting as a conclusion. Um, it's obvious that the global consumption of paper and palm oil is driving Riau's forest loss. And the new plantations could easily be put on wasteland, and there's been a lot of suggestions that this should happen. In fact, the oil palm companies have said they'll do this. They haven't quite done it yet, but they may. So this, this set of maps just really shows you if you go down from 1982 um, at the top and then you move back up again to 2007, what's been happening to the ordinary forests, which are on the, um, the light green colour, the dark green are the peat swamp forests, and you get them gradually being converted and gradually disappearing. And it's the movement into the peat swamp forest which has been the most serious in terms of emissions. So some of this um, on the Kampar Peninsula in Riau, they plant the um, pulp company plans to log the area and then plant acacia. And this is hugely deep. This is a real peat dome. And uh, so you get you know, all of the problems that go with planting uh, on peat and clearing peat swamp forest. Um, I went into an oil palm plantation in Jambi, which has been grown on peat, and I found that the trees were sort of sinking into the peat. Um, you had this interesting sign up saying, beware of fire. Um, and of course, there was burning just everywhere. This was in 1998 when there was huge, huge burning everywhere. 
And um, if you burn peat swamp forest, well then you just get layers and layers of wood which keep burning and burning and of course releasing huge amounts of smoke and huge amounts of carbon emissions. So they reckon in that year, 1998, when they had the big fires, that was more than all of the emissions from Europe in that year, simply coming from these peat swamps. Um, and this kind of thing is going on all the time and, and with, the oil palm, uh, with the pulp companies as well. So central Kalimantan as well, destroyed peat swamp forest. Now, if you think that Riau is just simply all oil palm plantations and all um, pulp and paper plantations, um, yeah, there's a lot of it. But there are also national parks and there are also minority groups living in there, including um, this group called Talang Mamak, which means people of the forest, um, in the Bukit Tigapul or the Three Thirty Hills um, National Park. Um, they are protectors of their tigers that live in the forest. They have a lot of stories about their tigers. Um, although tigers eat people occasionally, they say no, they only eat the illegal loggers. Um, and there are plenty of those coming into the park. Um, and they try to charge people for taking the, the uh, rattan and the trees and so on from the park. Not always successfully, but they certainly try hard. Um, so if you're looking at domestic forests, these are the forests that people have been planting. Indonesian villagers have long planted these useful trees around their houses and in the Sweden fallows, changing the nature of the forests in which they lived. And the Dutch explorer von Gaffren, as early as 1858, noted that the Bornean forests were at the most 130 to 150 years old because the Sweden practices had led to the constant cutting and renewal of the forests, which included selective planting. So they were domesticating wild forest trees, useful trees producing valuable resins, in other cases introduced species such as coffee and para rubber. And uh, the people who were growing plantations of those same things, the coffee and the rubber, were very critical of the, uh, the, the smallholder growths, but um, the smallholder plantings were in fact very successful. Um, you also find traditional forests, adat forests, um, grown by indigenous groups um, or preserved really. Um, access used to be quite restricted to those forests uh, because they are owned largely by aristocrats. Um, but now commoners can use them um, and they still have quite considerable plant and animal resources. People originally thought that those forests were sort of pristine. They hadn't been really attempted to be altered by people. But when they looked at them a bit more closely, they discovered that there were a lot of very useful trees in those forests. And the proportion of useful trees was much higher than one might have expected. So people had been altering them and had been planting them, as one might uh, perhaps think. Um, they're with, located within the forest estate, and they fall officially within forestry department jurisdiction. Edit rights are supposed to be respected, but they have no legal force and regulations which were set out in the forestry law haven't been implemented. So there's still no real legal control by local people over their forests. Um, and one example, this is uh, a famous village which um, resisted logging companies, protected its traditional forest to conserve its clean water supplies and hunting areas. They like to hunt pig mainly. Um, and they actually won an environmental award from the Indonesian government for doing that. But um, they couldn't somehow get any payment for doing that. They, ICRAF tried it. Um, International Centre for Agroforestry really tried to push this payment for environmental services, this PEZ scheme, um, for this village in particular as a test case. But they couldn't get 
investors to pay up because the investors said, well, you know, the village boundary is a little bit insecure. The, local, the people from the next neighbouring villages aren't very happy about those boundaries. They say these people came in, you know, only 30 years ago. They haven't been here for centuries. Why should they, you know, get any money for looking after their forests? They're really our forests. And there was a lot of discussion about all that. And eventually the investors wouldn't actually give any money. So Stulang is now trying to raise funds through ecotourism, and this is also not easy. You know, you're at a distant area, quite hard to get to. People don't speak English. Um, how do you manage to then get ecotourists to come in here? Although the place is beautiful and the forests um, very worth looking at, but uh, you know, you need very specific people who are going to come in, and so the sort of income from ecotourism is pretty <coughs> unreliable. Um, and then, of course, you have the agroforests. Um, Local people in general managing forests seldom acknowledged by government authorities. Um, as for Nordweig, who's a big, uh, in charge of the local ICRAF program, he has said considerable parts of Indonesia's closed canopy forests are actually agroforests planted by local people. Um, so that uh, they provide jobs for many people, there's a whole variety of them, particularly in Sumatra. A lot of the rubber and coffee, cinnamon and so on, is in the local agroforests. Most interventions introduce tree crops that need replanting after a number of years, but the Dama agroforests of Krui in the southern part of Sumatra, permanent planted secondary forest, dominated by the Dama tree, from which they extract resin. A recent study found some farmers selling the timber, but they were also replanting. And so you see that the Dama forest people extracting the resin, um, and they originally, there's a, there's a succession there, they originally plant coffee and pepper and fruit trees and then after a while, after the coffee has had its day, then the Dhamma forests are ready to be tapped. And then they're a permanent secondary forest. And they've taken over the forest over a very wide area. And they're a buffer to the local national park. Um, and then we have the situation with jungle rubber, so-called, which also provides a sort of a secondary forest with um, a quite a, a reasonable amount of biodiversity. So if you look at these three graphs, the, f the, the top one, um, is primary forest, the middle one is a traditional rubber agroforest, and just at the, the, the final one, a very small amount of biodiversity in a plantation, a rubber plantation, so almost monoculture, of course. But the um, traditional rubber agroforest still preserving quite a lot of biodiversity, quite a number of fruit trees, timber trees, other things in there, and very old rubber trees, um, you know, lasting 50 years or so sometimes. So the quotation in the 1930s when people realised what was happening, the natives have unconsciously followed methods that treat the trees as a forest rather than an orchard crop. So presuming that it's going to come back as a forest with quite long rotations. Um, looking at Dayak agriculture now in West Kalimantan, where you have the basic three components with a rice field, a rubber garden, and a mixed tambawang, a mixed fruit garden, um, which villages have communal rights to, very old, often very culturally significant, lasting hundreds of years, these gardens, strong sanctions against felling trees, particular trees, where you've got to pay all sorts of fines um, if you by some chance do it. And the oil palm companies sometimes do fell some of these important trees, such as honey trees, and uh, they are also asked to pay um, if they do that, uh, either consciously or unconsciously. Um, where they, oil palm companies come in, there's a lot of negotiation and um, they try to prevent the destruction of their 
Tumbawang. It depends a bit on how strong the local adult leaders are, the local traditional leaders. If they're very strong, they will say, right, no, Tumbawang is going. We'll give you rubber gardens. We'll give you imperata grass, um, useless grassland. You can have all that to plant your old palm, but you're not taking our um, traditional communal forests. They're too old. They've got too much significance. Um, and then people like to keep their rice fields if they can, largely because they like to give people rice wine. Um, it's a social thing rather than it's their food. They often have to buy their food. They often have to buy rice, but they keep a certain amount of rice field to produce uh, the rice, to produce rice wine. So they do, they do take up oil palm, but within certain limits, and they maybe give up half their land for oil palm, keep the rest for uh, things like their... Um, fruit gardens and their rice fields. Community forests, um, well, these are the sort of things which uh, have been now sanctioned to a certain extent by the government, trying to get some sort of more secure tenure within the forest estate. Krui did get it, the area which had the Dama forests. Officially sanctioned agroforests, uh, community forests have been permitted on some degraded production forest land. And they protected people from being expelled because during the authoritarian Sahato era, the police would often come in and clear people from national parks and even from the production forest. They produced elephants at times that would break down people's houses and uh, they would set fire to villages and all sorts of things to get them out of the forest. They don't do that anymore and uh, they are now allowing people to have longer term leases. But this is a pretty recent thing. Law 6 of 2007 enabled them to get much longer term leases. And um, there was a, um, a particular dispute in central Java where the villagers wanted to take over some uh, government-owned forest, pine forest, which had been pretty well um, neglected and destroyed, and to plant their own um, forest there. And they were not permitted for a long time. But now, <coughs> now finally, they're working together to regreen the area and plant up um, the area because um, it's been realised that... Um, the government needs more trees, they need more planted forests. So they're allowing the people now to have a little bit more leeway. Uh, just looking at two contrasting coffee agroforests, <coughs> the coffee garden with, with shade trees and pepper, that's considered a simple uh, shade, a simple garden, whereas the multi-strata garden with many different trees and a lot of locally grown trees um, are now the ones where people have been awarded with special long-term community forestry contra contracts and leases as long as they continue to allow the trees to grow. So uh, the coffee is a kind of a secondary thing as far as the government's concerned. Coffee is not considered a tree, um, but you know the fact that they have the other trees growing makes it okay. And uh, just the situation in, in Wonosobo in central Java where the, the dark green areas are the protection forest. They didn't try to move in there. They did try to move into the light green areas, which are the, were the ones that were forested with pine plantations, and uh, tried to take <coughs> over lands which are owned by the forestry department, and um, they were not allowed to do that. But, um, as I say, things have modified somewhat now. On Java, of course, considering the very high population, there is almost no natural forest within the forest estate. Land for farming is restricted to the first few years' growth of plantation trees, most famously teak. The teak forests in eastern Java, um, particularly written up by Professor Nancy Peluso in her quite famous book called Rich Forests, Poor People. 
um, where the people have to simply follow the teak forests as they're, and help to plant them up and plant their other crops around them and as the canopies close, have to move again. So they have no security of tenure at all. Um, so this is the Tompang Sari system. Um, people who know about the forest history in Burma know that the same sort of thing developed independently in Burma called Taunya. Um, and that was happening with the Karen people um, and uh, planting up the teak forests in Burma during the uh, 1860s, uh, 1850s and 60s. The local forestry department has always historically had poor relations with farmers within the teak areas and they still shoot people if they find them in some of the teak forests uh, trying to steal things. They were doing it just the other day. Um, but some modified arrangements are being attempted through the community forest system to provide farmers with more permanent access but not ownership. Once you get a long lease, however, you feel that the land is yours and so things are improving. Um, Sangon, Paraceranthes falcataria, um, a fast-growing tree with a very light shade. Um, people are growing that a lot in Java because it's good for firewood, it grows quickly, you can handle it yourself, there's a lot of small sawmills around and people are getting some sort of reasonable income by uh, selling this wood. So. Um, the, the Ministry of Forestry is encouraging that and encouraging farmers outside the forestry estate on their own hutan um, rakyat, as they call it, people's <coughs> forest, um, to actually produce more of the sengon as well. The only problem being that, you know, if you're producing just one forest type, um, there are diseases which are now beginning to creep in to that sort of forest. So, people's plantations, another kind, um, uh, where in 2007, They've tried to expand industrial forests. They say pro-poor, pro-people, pro-jobs, all of that. Um, and so allowing some uh, forestry to develop on degraded production forests with quite long leases, up to 100 years, and uh, quite a lot of government money going in to help people until the trees are productive. And there are various choices that they can make between the kinds of trees and uh, how they actually do it. They're all important industrial trees that they grow, including acacia mangum and acacia crasicarpa, the one for the peat forests. So optimistic future scenarios, the timber production is going to increase from these people's plantations and eventually there won't be any more illegal logging. So they hope. And there's a conference just in the next week um, about the problems with illegal logging and this whole thing about avoided deforestation as a way of reducing emissions um, as part of the Kyoto Protocol. If, if people are constantly cutting down the trees illegally, how do you keep doing, how you're able to do that? So um, it is obviously a problem that uh, the Indonesian government is facing and they're hoping that these new plantations will uh, overcome it. I think it's pretty optimistic because nothing too much is happening at the moment. Um, <coughs> so now, if you start to reforest and you start to get more forest growing in some areas, as has been happening in North America and in parts of Central and South America particularly, um, that you get what's called a forest transition. It's happened over time in Europe as well and um, it was related to historical adjustment of agriculture to better soils where the poor land went to forests. Um, to circumstances in which modern forest transitions will occur through a scarcity of timber products which encourage farmers to plant trees, or through development, or de-agrarianisation, if you like, where people move away from the land and move into urban areas, into other kinds of employment, releasing land for tree planting. 
Um, in Asia, of course, in recent times, there's been a lot of plantation development in China, in India and Vietnam. And so um, the FAO, of course, um, classifying these plantation areas as forests. So you see quite a lot of reforestation going on. And uh, in general, it's been concluded that strong states will be more successful than their weaker, more democratic counterparts in doing that. Um, Hecht uh, and others have suggested the impact of remittances as well as environmental conservation policies have produced a forest resurgence. And Angelson agrees that that can slow down or reverse um, forest loss, either through direct regulation in protected areas or um, payment for environmental services. And he suggests an application to different regions of a country where you can see undisturbed forests, forest frontiers, where most deforestation is now occurring, a mosaic of forest and agriculture, the mature stage of deforestation, or a final stage where plantations become dominant, but peasantry planting might also occur. And there you find Brudel's forest scarcity and development perhaps both taking place. So this particular um, four kinds of uh, developments have been applied to Indonesia um, with Java indicating the likely onset of a forest transition and Papua being farthest from it. So Papua with its undisturbed forests, Kalimantan seeing the forest frontiers, Sumatra the forest agricultural mosaics, and Java perhaps the forest transition um, occurring now with this regreening activity that's been going on. Um, Van Nordwijk and others list four important questions to be asked at various points along a similar curve depicting change in environmental service functions, such as carbon stocks over time. Things like, can deforestation really be halted? Can forest degradation be deflected to a tree-based land use pattern? Can already degraded lands be de reforested? And to what level of tree cover and forest functions can land recover in reaching a new steady state, which is a successful forest transition? And so he's, they've um, written up this, this uh, idea, avoiding the deforestation in the areas which still have forest, um, deflecting forest degradation in the areas where deforestation and degradation are happening strongly, and then trying to increase the steady state tree cover. Much the same sort of thing, speeding up rehabilitation of degraded lands. But using environmental service functions, such as the amount of carbon stock um, in all of these different phases, these different stages re-establishment of reasonably high carbon stocks as you reforest. And they've suggested a regreening revolution based on farmer tree planting, but there are many, many problems. Access to land and good quality planting materials, farmer know-how to produce and market the quality products and secure market access, a lack of rewards for environmental services, a lack of legal and institutional support. But where forest-derived timber is still abundant, such as in Papua, and in East Kalimantan, which has the most forest in Kalimantan, prospects are poor for farmer-grown trees because there's so much forest around and there'll be little incentive for people to plant trees there. And um, manuring and, and others say, under conditions of insecure land tenure and poor market access, smallholder farmers cannot and will not cultivate a wide range of tree species as a component of their integrated and risk-averse livelihood and land use systems and will not effectively respond to the increased demand for wood products. So although the country is now pushing wood products, you know, plantations, we can now grow more plantations, we must plant more trees. Um, the farmers are not all that willing unless they can see it as being useful and as less it will pay. And where you have 
problems with tenure. Um, you know, planting trees may help you to secure tenure perhaps on your land, but it's also kind of risky if somebody else is going to come in and take the land over. So looking at this new situation of reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, RED, and the Indonesian Ministry of Forestry. Facing deforestation at the heart of the climate agenda at the Bali meeting um, was encouraged by Indonesia, which had been working to facilitate this. It's um, not happening till 2012, but that's not very long ahead. It's hoped that carbon and credits will be awarded for avoided deforestation and general emission reductions to be traded on the global carbon market, bringing hopefully large rewards to forest-rich developing countries such as Indonesia. And there are many technical questions such as establishing the baseline so you can judge how much carbon has actually been saved, who will be paid and how, very important. The questions of leakage, you know, if you save one forest here, does someone then go and chop down another forest somewhere else? And the permanence of the reductions. And, and the whole thing about social issues, tenure and ownership of the forest, very important. I've mentioned this question of who gets paid. How do you trickle this money down? In Indonesia, there's no great tradition of making sure the money trickles down properly to local people if they are the guardians of the forest. And this is the whole idea. NGOs and activists are concerned that the rights of traditional people will be ignored, with the forest being valued for carbon alone. Now, in the lead up to Bali, oil palm estates were prohibited from opening new land in peat swamps, and this, this prohibition was reiterated at the Bali meeting. A deadline of 2009, this year, was placed on the pulp and paper companies by which they would use only their own plantations and not natural forest to source fibre. They reckoned that there would be enough plantations by 2014 so they would be able to stop using natural forests for any industrial purpose. Well, maybe not. However, that was the plan. Law 6 of 2007 extended the leases of forestry concessions from 20 to 100 years, renaming them Forestry Concessions for Ecosystem Restoration, not allowing timber extraction, the emphasis being rehabilitation and conservation. Extraction of non-timber forest products was possible. Local communities were allowed to do that. They weren't supposed to plant. They weren't supposed to cut anything. Some red pilot studies were getting underway through consultation with governors and district leaders. One of these was in Aceh, the province in the far north of Sumatra, um, while the two Papuan provinces were also interested. Law 6 of 2007 authorises provincial and district governments to issue permits for storing and absorbing carbon in both production and protection forests. Looking at the Aceh example, the Ulumasan um, was one area of forest which had never been put into any sort of national park or really protected. It had been protected because it was the centre of the gum activities, the free Aceh movement, where there was really a war going on for several years. Um, peace was declared in 2005, just after the tsunami, which was Christmas 2004. Um, and since that time, that forest, which had been where the gum were largely hanging out, um, uh, the, the illegal logging has increased considerably in intensity. And of course, there's a huge demand for timber. I was in Aceh recently for the first time and you know all the houses have been rebuilt. They're all wooden houses that have been rebuilt from the forests and uh, all along the coast, of course, um, huge amounts of rebuilding necessary with the enormous loss of houses as well as people um, during the tsunami. Um, however, they had quite a good scheme there 
supported by the governor, who used to be the GAM leader. Um, it was well managed by Flora and Fauna International, with initial payments to stakeholders actually taking place through traditional leaders from ODA funds, uh, overseas development funds. It was hoped that a real market for red credits would allow sustainable land uses to outcompete illegal logging and deforestation. However, the Uyla Marsan project was rigorously tested by the Climate Community and Biodiversity Alliance, giving permission to sell a million tonnes of carbon over 30 years. And Merrill Lynch, which you know all about, is keen to purchase credits, but no, not one has so far been marketed. So not a tonne of carbon has so far been sold. The Ministry of Forestry last year published a set of draft regulations which started that not only must they control the process, but that 30% of all red credits must be stored by the Red Commission as operating guarantees, basically by the Forestry Department. They wanted 30%. This level of withholding credits would be sufficient to kill off the Ulamasan project, which has its own 30% risk management buffer. The Ministry have further stated that no project may go ahead until final regulations are issued, which may be by June this year, and all must have central government approval. So the Ministry is once again assuming power, is having a very much a top-down sort of administration of these projects. Fair enough in some ways, I suppose, but um, this claiming of 30% is has everybody really worried because it might make the projects unviable. 20 projects so far in the pilot phase, um, nine in Kalimantan, six in Sumatra, three in Papua, and so on. The World Bank has called the push for projects Indonesia's carbon rush. Everybody's rushing in there to see if they can get hold of these projects, but you know they're now stalled because the Ministry of Forestry is still waiting to announce its regulations. So far, adverse local comments have been received on two of the pilot projects, but detailed information is lacking on several, so the local people are beginning to get a bit stirred up over what might happen. The Ministry admits a lack of capacity at regional level to handle all the complex issues surrounding the carbon trade and emissions monitoring which is one excuse, I suppose, for handling it all centrally. But, um, you know, there's huge questions still around all of these projects and how they're going to be administered. In February 2009, the peatlands were reopened to palm oil plantations by the Agriculture Ministry, after having promised that that wouldn't happen. The sector being described as the main driver of the people's economy. There will be tighter controls on the depth and fertility of the peat, but environmentalists are appalled. Pulp and paper plants will also be released from their obligation to source fibre only from plantations this year. They still do not have enough plantations, so be allowed to cut more natural forest. More large pulp and paper plants, what's more, will be established, at least two in Kalimantan, likely Korean, and one in Papua, which didn't have any so far. Government regulation number two of 2008 sought to regulate the level of taxes charged to large mining enterprises operating in protected forests. Coming so soon after Bali, that caused a mild uproar. Mining in protected forests? So how serious is the government about controlling deforestation? Back in 2006, when the Indonesian Forestry Congress claimed that Indonesian forestry had become resurgent, critics argued that this was far from reality. The forestry sector was also targeted as needing to become more people-centred. Since that time, there's been some movement to allow improved access to people living in degraded production forest with long extension of leases and provision of funding to allow new plantations to be grown. Despite some initial enthusiasm, this program has not moved very far. 
It partly hasn't moved very far because when people start to look in detail at where these projects actually are, which supposedly are in areas which have no claims on the land, they find there's a lot of errors in the actual mapping uh, where the forestry department says there are no claims on the land, often there are considerable claims. And so there have been a lot of hold-up at local level as to where these plantations can actually be sited. With the December 2007 Bali Climate Meeting with Indonesia as chair, approving the inclusion of both red and avoided deforestation in a new Kyoto Protocol post-2012, Indonesia could claim that there was a resurgence at least of interest in forestry by outside donors, Indonesia's carbon rush. However, Indonesia's progress in reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation remains non-existent, with continuing concessions being granted to oil palm and co companies, even on peatland, and mining being permitted in national parks. Red pilot projects remain stalled, awaiting Ministry of Forestry regulations, as the Ministry continues to insist on top-down control of the process. Although there have not yet been the increased violations of Indigenous rights which some NGOs had feared, Neither does there seem to be a real willingness to tackle the serious questions of tenure and equitable funding which will be necessary to make the process work. So we await results and evidence that Indonesian forestry has now become both resurgent and people-centred. Business as usual is sadly still evident in many aspects of forest management. Thank you. I am not a specialist at all in this sort of thing, so forgive me if this question seems, um, you know, off mark. But it seems to me you're talking here about uh, several uh, different alternatives to using these forests, and you've mm -hmm. stressed this management top-down, which obviously yes. you're not too pleased with. And then there was lurking in various parts of your talk the notion of, you mentioned ecotourism, and also uh, Indigenous peoples controlling the sure, forest. Sure, um, And I, I don't know if there are other alternatives you also have in mind. So I'd be interested in whether you're presenting, whether you've got a model that you're beginning to develop with sort of the right way to go about it here. Well, I think the, the problem seems to be that um, a lot of people have claimed that if only the Ministry of Forestry would release the lands in production forest, a lot of the lands which have now no forest, no trees. Um, you know, in many cases, they're people's farms. If they would release those from forestry department control so that people could, in fact, get much more secure tenure over those lands, that would be one step. And then the other lands which are... Sorry? Would that, would that mean that these farmers would then allow their lands to become forest? Um, well... They might, and um, but at least they would they would be able to get more secure tenure because once you're outside the forest estate, you know you can get more or less legal ownership of your of your lands. It's much easier um, than when it's inside the forest estate. So that's one thing, and a lot of people have been pushing hard for that. What's happened so far is that the government has given long leases, but there are restrictions on those. You've got to keep planting trees, and they don't really acknowledge agriculture as happening. Um, so that they're still trying to sort of keep this kind of control. Um, what, what, what is also, however, happening at the local level is that, you know, government control is not particularly strong in many areas. This is now a democracy. This is a society where people protest and they, you know, claim their own rights for doing things. So the forestry department can really no longer expect to have this 
top-down secure control, which they had during the Sahado period. And um, people complain and people do different things. So, you know, they want the adat forest, they want to be able to um, keep their traditional forests. And that's another thing. The regulations have never been implemented. Let's implement them. Let's, you know, get these categories better organised. What we need is a complete re-look at the whole question of land use and how land use is organised. And okay, if you want forests to actually be planted in some areas, people will plant forests in Java because they have no forests. Of course they'll plant trees there and they can make a go of it. They can make a living out of planting forests in Java. But, you know, if you're in East Kalimantan where there's already a lot of forests, they're not going to be bothered doing that. Um, so, you know, you've got to look at it from a sensible point of view and forget all this, somehow all these ideas of the power of the forestry department, which has come down from colonial times. Um, you know, that the, the nation always should have control over the forests. Um, this should really now disappear in a democratic society and what you should have is a much more rational way of uh, organising the land use. There's nothing wrong with oil palm. It doesn't mean that oil palm has to keep taking over more and more land. Already Indonesia is the world's leading producer of oil palm. Why do you have to keep planting more? Why do you have to plant it in the peak, in the peat swamps when there's a lot of wasteland available for oil palm? You know, the whole idea of land use has been kind of let go so that the big corporations have more or less done what they wanted. The forestry department is trying to keep control and the local people inevitably seem to be missing out on all of this and they're complaining. So of course they're not going to do what the forestry department wants them to do now, which is plant lots of trees, unless they can make money out of it. So, you know, the whole thing needs to be looked at at each level, at the district level, it needs to be looked at, you know, by the, the people in charge of forestry. There are people who are coming around to this view now, but, you know, there are other people in the forestry department who they call dinosaurs, who are still sort of back to the old systems. And um, so there's, there are struggles going on in there as well. Um, so the much more rational system of allocating land to forests, to farms, um, and to things like oil palm and pulp, um, this, would, this would be the way to sort it out. You don't need to get rid of these things, but you certainly need to make space for local people as well as making space for the corporations and so on. They don't have legal tenure in general, um, but if they're outside the forest estate, uh, they've got more chance. If they want to actually get their land surveyed, it costs money. If they want to get their land surveyed, they can get um, legal tenure to these lands, yes. And any government project, if anyone is part of a government project like a trans migrant or somebody who comes in and plants government-controlled rubber or something like that on a government project, they get automatic legal tenure to their lands. So it's possible to actually buy and sell the lands. You can do it by getting legal letters um, from various important people and you can buy and sell the lands and so you can get a sort of legal tenure outside the forest estate. Once you're inside the forest estate, it's much more difficult and if you're a farmer, you're not supposed to be there. So this is the problem and there are 60 million farmers in those areas, you know, and inside the national parks as well. What are you going to do, throw all those people out? They don't do that anymore. This is a democracy. But people don't have proper tenure, they don't have proper um, you know, le legal rights to their land. And the, the oil palm uh, leases and the leases of the pulp and paper companies are much stronger in terms of their legal situation. They're still leases, but they're stronger than the leases that the local people have or the rights that the local people have to use the land. 
And so these are problems. So the oil palm companies theoretically can come in and take the land. Of course, they can't do it really because the local people protest. And there's something like 4,000 cases every year of you know, local people protesting about these things that are going on. Um, and the courts are clogged with them and the local districts are going crazy because you know, there's so much resistance now. So, so, so the farm, farmers are sort of taking a legal action against they are. this, but um, in practice, uh, yep. do they go into these state uh, land concessions and then plant their trees and sort of make their in some cases they have. To in some cases, they have also done things like cut down um, thousands of oil palms and replace them with their own trees. Um, <coughs> in other cases, they've burned plantations or simply stolen out all the oil palm and sold it. There's all sorts of things they do. They steal the equipment, um, and uh, you know there's lots of lots of ways of protest. Even when they actually have small holdings of oil palm, and there are many oil palm smallholders that are part of a company, you know they will steal the fertilizer and sell it. They will work um, on the oil palm estate in a very desultory manner, so that they will work for one hour and then they'll disappear. You know all this sort of foot dragging and so on um, happens, as as well as big protests as well as you know, stealing machinery, um, invading estates, all these sorts of things are going on. And the police ha actually uh, have been you know, fairly strong in trying to protect the plantations, but there's a lot of protest now by NGOs as well, and some of that goes international. So you know, with the internet and so on available, the, plant, the, the, uh, the resistance becomes worldwide, and you get um, you know, the sort of opprobrium and where the, where the oil palm plantations misbehave, they can be taken now to the round table for sustainable palm oil, um, which is supposed to regulate their behaviour. And many of them do misbehave, and there's big cases going on there now about those plantations. Because they belong to, you know, important industries down the supply chain, down the trading chain, um, and they want to say that their oil palm is grown sustainably. Well, if they're pushing local people around and having, you know, huge protests and so on, they can't claim that. So there's a lot of push internationally also to try to improve those sort of situations. But it's slow and, uh, and messy. I mean... And then this second uh, quick question was about the commodity, changing commodity prices. How yes. does that affect it, uh, the, the expansion of the, the estate? Right. Well, this is, some, th the this is something we're farmers. still looking at. Um, you know, the oil palm prices went up like that and they've come back down again. Um, between 2007, uh, they started going up. Uh, they were the highest in about March 2008. Uh, by July, they started going down. In November 2008, they were about the lowest, and they've come up a little bit since then. They're still above the cost of production, so um, it's still possible for people to plant oil palm, more oil palm. But um, you know, the big push for biofuels has gone, the price of oil went down. Um, people in Europe began having some second thoughts about how green is biofuel from oil palm. China, of course, doesn't care. They want biofuels from oil palm. Um, so China is always the, the one that's sort of outside of the controls from the round table for sustainable oil palm and so on. Um, and that's a bit of a problem. But um, the the the, the general impact of the collapse in commodity prices has been to slow things down, as you might expect. And um, 
I'm still trying to look at that because it's, it's a very interesting situation. And in some cases, uh, factories have refused to take people's fruit where the prices went low. Um, you know, people have to deliver their fruit to the company um, within 24 hours of cutting it, otherwise the oil palm goes rancid and it's no good. Um, and once you belong to a plantation, until you've paid off your credit, you have to give your fruit to the company and the company decides how much you'll pay. So a lot of collusion among the companies to decide what the prices are. They take at least 30% out for the credit that people have to pay. So people often end up with not a lot of money. And um, so that the amount of money they're getting has now decreased quite considerably from the glory days of about a year ago when they were you know, uh, able to pay off their credit. And in some cases, in the West Kalimantan situation that I was looking at, they were actually um, using the profits from oil palm to get rid of their oil palm trees and plant rubber. And uh, they actually rather prefer rubber as their crop. But um, once they're free of the estates, they're allowed to do what they like. And so in some cases, these smallholders are no longer oil palm smallholders and they're beginning to go into other things. So uh, there's, there's quite a lot of variation, however, depending on where you are in the country. And uh, in some cases, people are only contract laborers and there's no small holdings. In other cases, the smallholders are able to exercise quite a lot of agency and, you know, control what they're doing. But um, yeah, there's, it's, it's hard to generalize, even though, you know, you get some, the USDA just recently published a report suggesting that everything was very rosy in the oil palm. All the smallholders had paid off their land. They were in a great position and so on. Well, that depends on where you are. Yeah, I was just quickly interested in, you mentioned, you alluded to the Korean... Uh, yes. Uh, pulp pulp yeah. And I'm just curious what the scale of foreign direct investment is in Indonesia uh, from Korea, China, Malaysian interest, who knows where it's yep. all coming from, yep. uh, and what political influence. You mentioned, you keep saying this is a democracy, and of course, this is a kind of a democracy, isn't it? We're all kind of democracy. Yes. Uh, and so forth. And the other question I had, which is actually the opposite end of the spectrum, is to what extent is the are the, is there like a smallholder desire to actually engage in agroforestry as opposed to say migration to the cities and doing something completely different? And I mean, those are two different kind of elements, yep. but it does yep. talk to the same issue. Okay. What's sure. Happen, sure. Um, <coughs> in terms of um, foreign direct investment, um, there's still quite a lot, um, particularly from Malaysia into oil palm. Uh, you know, Malaysia was the world's largest producer and then they started running out of land. So they ran out of land on the peninsula and then they are producing a lot of oil palm in Sabah and Sarawak in eastern Malaysia. They're now running out of land there too. And so, you know, they're looking for cheap land in Indonesia and they've been doing that for now quite a few years. Um, so the really big oil palm companies like Saim Darby, that was one of the estates that we were looking at, um, in West Kalimantan, that, um, that is just one of many plantations they own. They own many plantations in Malaysia as well. Um, and they hated the Indonesian DIAC employees. Initially, they couldn't cope with them because, you know, they weren't properly disciplined and all of that sort of stuff. But, you know, the, the, the employees were hitting back and they were protesting and, and so on. People didn't really behave like that in Malaysia. But, um, yeah. 
Um, so there is a, there's a lot of direct investment, um, a, a lot of investment by some of the big chains that control some of the other products of oil palm further down the, uh, the, the, um, the chain, the market chain. Um, there's investment from Britain, there's a lot of investment from Singapore. Um, Korea I, has been mainly in forestry. Um, they had some big um, logging concessions. Uh, and then the, more recently now, they're just moving into this pulp and paper plants. But I think this is, these are the first of the Korean pulp and paper plants. The ones um, in Sumatra have big links to China. The pulp and paper plants, um, they're broke. Um, they lost a lot of money um, in the Asian crisis initially, but they were allowed to, to um, actually uh, keep operating and they've been now allowed to expand, uh, even though, technically speaking, they've been operating at a loss for a long time. But they have a lot of Chinese connections and they have plants in China as well. And China, of course, is looking for lots of pulp and, and paper supplies. So, you know, the world market for those things is keeping these huge pulp and paper plants operating. So lots of Chinese investment there. Suggestions of Chinese investment in oil palm, which haven't really happened so far. But it's, so it's been mainly Malaysia and Singapore and some of the people down the supply chain. Um, Cargill is a big one into oil palm. Um, and uh, there have been quite a few others. But some of the European ones have, have been bowing to pressure from the Roundtable for Sustainable Palm Oil. And they're the ones who are now pushing for, you know, trying to get sustainability on their plantations. So they continue to sell their, their palm oil. Um, but, you know, China has never bothered very much and they're a particularly strong market, as is India. India is not part of the round table either. So, you know, you can have as much, as many plantations as you like, which will want to sell their oil palm uh, to, their palm oil to India or China, and they feel that they're outside <coughs> these sort of controls of sustainability and so on. Um, now, your, your second question, can, sorry, can you tell the me? The second question had to do with the Oh, actually desire. wanting to, uh, yeah. yeah. Agroforestry, rather yeah. than simply migrate to the cities. You know, um, yeah. Um, yeah, there's all this thing about de-agrarianisation and the, right. the right. agrarian transition and so on in Southeast Asia, which has been popular, popularised by, by people like Jonathan Rigg. Um, hasn't happened too much in uh, places outside Java. Mm -hmm. In Java, certainly. You get a lot of movement to cities. There's a, a lot of taking over of agricultural lands, actually, by urban expansion. Um, and a lot of people now working in factories and so on, as there is in Malaysia. But in, in Indonesia, in Sumatra and Kalimantan, much less. Um, there's still a lot of people working in agriculture. Um, in West Kalimantan, for example, it's only 25% um, that are actually of the population that's living in any, in any urban area. Um, and so the urbanisation's got a long way to go. And in a sense, the oil palm companies and so on have absorbed a lot of the rural population which might have been tempted to move to the cities. They haven't done so as yet. And in West Kalimantan particularly, there is a big push by NGOs to um, make sure that diet culture is being maintained um, and to get people to... Um, in fact, involve themselves in agroforestry because they've been pushing agroforestry very strongly against oil palm, um, but to maintain uh, Sweden and maintain 
the fruit forests maintain other aspects of diet culture. Many people are very keen on that, but often they're the older people. Many of the younger people don't really care too much about that. If they can get money from oil palm, they'll continue to stay on the oil palm or from rubber. Otherwise, they might well want to move out. And certainly that is starting, that's beginning. But it's, it's way behind the situation in Malaysia, for example. Mm -hmm. So you still have a lot of potential urbanization, if you like. Well, I was just curious about that, because of course yeah. in the Amazon, you have so much uh, small and medium-sized uh, medium urban areas that are just expanding. Now it's expanding yep. everywhere. I'm just yep. curious, in your futurist projection, if you yep. have it, yep. do you see that as a potentially likely pattern for Kalimantan, or do you think that there are other not for a while, yeah. Right. I mean, the, the, if you like, the oil palm plantation is a sort of an industrial enterprise within the rural area. It has its factory, right. you know. You can take your, your oil palm there and, and you, get your, um, you, you get your money and so on, and you can get your money pretty regularly. Um, so, you know, in a way, why would someone want to go to a city like Pontianak um, where there are not all that many jobs available, where some of the woodworking plants which did exist there have closed down because there's not enough timber to main raw materials to maintain their supplies. So, you know, in some cases the actual urban employment has declined right. and unemployment is pretty high mm -hmm. in some of those cities. So the people in sense may be better off staying in the rural areas, mm -hmm. deciding if they've got land, deciding what to do with it, mm -hmm. um, and hopefully getting quite a bit of money out of that. You know, they may want to then send their children to university in Java or something like that and get them out of the farming scene. That's happening, but it's happening fairly slowly. Yeah, and uh, it's certainly happening in Java. I mean, there's a part of Kalimantan, for example, <coughs> where you have a very heavy population, a very dense population that are rice growers. They're very much more like Java. And those people have been moving out of there for a long time, moving to the cities. That's, that's in South Kalimantan moving into um, urban areas and so on, and migrating all over Indonesia, Banjaris people. But um, that's unusual. That's, that's more like the Java scene. Mm -hmm. That area was considered overpopulated in 1893, and then when the people started moving out. So, you know, for a long time that's been like that. No population increase, very <coughs> dense population. Most of Kalimantan is still underpopulated according to the average in Indonesia. The average, of course, is very skewed by Java. But, you know, there's the potential for more people to come into some of those areas. There's still pioneering going on in some of the areas along the borders. So there's, in a way, there's still, the agricultural frontier hasn't closed yet. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. Right. And in Papua, certainly not. Papua is still underpopulated. They're still sending transmigrants there, but the transmigrants sometimes get killed because, you know, there's, a, there's an insurgency going on there as well, and they don't particularly like people from Java. So... You know, you get ethnic problems in various places as well. So, um, yeah, there's all, all of those sort of underlying currents going on too. But um, the actual rural urban migration is not really very strong in some of those areas. Okay, okay I think let's continue our discussion over a glass of wine. Sounds let's like a great idea. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay.